other people are afraid to talk about. Um, I, my master's degree is in genocide, right? I'm not scared of the dark things like that. Um, I'm not afraid of them, right? I'm not afraid to talk about them. Hey, you guys, what's up? It's Tuck Ross. You're listening to the Social Currency Marketing Podcast. This is the podcast that's covering the hottest digital and social media marketing topics that matter for your business now. This is all about strategy, whether you're a business leader or an entrepreneur, and we are here to help you get current quick. I'm your host, Tuck Ross. You can find me at Tuck Ross on all the social platforms. With me is Jessica Jensen. You can find her at Jessica K. Jensen on all the social platforms. And if you want to learn more about our show, check us out at socialcurrencyshow.com. All the episodes, all the show notes, and everything else is happening around the podcast. In today's episode, we are talking with Christina Libby, PR and marketing veteran, NYU professor, and the host and producer of her new podcast, Threat Matrix. We're going to be covering a ton of deep topics today around cybersecurity, the responsibility of social platforms to combat fake news, and what is that line between PR and propaganda where we start to ask ourselves, what is the truth? All right, here we go with Christina. Hey, Christina. Thanks for joining us today. Tuck and I are really excited about this meaty topic of cyber warfare. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. So, yeah, Christina, we're so happy you're here. Before we jump into your current project, Threat Matrix, did I have that right? Yes. Yeah, love yeah. the name, by the way. Um, Thank let's you. Let's rewind the clocks and really start from the beginning. You've worked for startups, Fortune 500s. You also teach. Uh, tell us how you got your start in PR, social media, and how it led you to the place you're at today, including launching a podcast of your own. Yeah, it's a long story. So my master's degree is in international security, and I focus pretty specifically on genocide. Um, but being a young 20-year-old female um, with it, like a high-pitched voice and a, maybe a little overly puffy demeanor, I did not get a job right away when I finished my master's degree. So I ended up working at this nonprofit um, that they kind of were like, do some of this marketing stuff. There's this thing called Facebook. And I was like sure, what's that? I can figure it out. Um, and that, that's kind of where it started. And then the nonprofit was so awful that I went looking for a job. And um, in that process, there was a lot. It was like right as the economy was like 2008-ish, right? So like, you know, we all know what happened in, in that time in our economy. And um, yeah. I uh, ended up people being like, we'd want to give you a job, but would you try consulting? And so that's how I started in social media. And from there, I ended up uh, having one of those days where I was like, I'm doing a lot more money with this consulting work than I am with my day job. Maybe I should just do that. And so um, I had started like a little social media company. And then someone was like, I want to be on the front page of the New York Times style section. And I was like, sure, I, I could do that. Like, we'll, we'll definitely be able to do that. And um, through kind of just like dumb luck that happens when you're 24, I was able to get this woman on the front page of the New York Times style section. And that's when I was like, oh, PR, I could do that too. <laughs> and then it kind of spiraled from there. Yeah. Very cool. Well, and you're leaving some stuff out there, I know, because you and I met at Microsoft. Yeah, so right. okay, tell yeah. us about that. Sorry. So, uh, yeah, so 
I had this little social media agency. I did social media and PR for a kind of a smattering of really different clients. I worked for Philips. I worked for National Geographic. Um, and while I was doing that, I moved from DC to New York City. And then um, a friend was like, hey, my friend at Microsoft is looking for someone who sits in this hybrid of PR and social media. And this was 2000 and. 10 maybe. So it was still a time where like you were a social media person or you were a PR person and there was not like an in-between zone. And so I just happened to have this weird set of skills because of that one woman asking me to get her in the New York Times and um, was able to, to take that and go to Microsoft and then do this sort of interesting kind of hybrid role where I didn't do social media because Jess did, but I knew enough to be able to sort of be conversant across the topic and to know about influencers who were then called mommy bloggers because they were the only influencers around. And, um, and I had like a special love for mom bloggers. So did that and then was at Microsoft for about six years, ended up leading um, consumer PR for Microsoft. So basically left a lot of the social stuff um, behind and then left there to move for one horrible, awful year to Texas. <laughs> so don't, don't be too harsh on Texas because uh, Tech used to live there, just FYI. Sorry. Okay, so I left Microsoft for one year and I lived in Dallas, Texas. Um, And I moved to Dallas. We wanted to start an influencer marketing software company, really looking at the process for um, finding, hiring, and then tracking influencers. Um, Did that for a couple of years and then realized I didn't want to make software for a living, that I was... That was not the thing that got me really excited. And so I've spent the last few years um, with a little agency and consulting um, predominantly for startups that are in that 10 to $100 million range that are looking to scale to the next level, looking across their entire marketing funnel. Because what I've done since Microsoft is really, um, I have taught and worked on kind of any facet of marketing that you would need to be able to transition your company from um, from that size range. I've also done some bigger work with other sort of much more established companies. I continue to consult for Microsoft on a few things, but um, really in that startup space, I think is where I found my um, found my learnings in the past couple of years. So, um, and I teach also at NYU. I teach e-commerce and digital marketing and social media. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, real quick, I actually have a follow-up question to this. So <laughs> Jess and I have talked about this. It's a it's a very interesting topic. PR, marketing, who owns social media? Or is social media its own thing? Is is it an ownership thing? Like where does that fit in your mind? I think it depends on your business objectives, right? So um and, and how you intend to use social media. So are you using it as a sales channel? In which case, I think it falls under marketing. Um, if you're using it as a channel that's about community building and that's higher in the funnel, then I think it can often fall under PR, right? At the end of the day, what I think is the most important is just that it has alignment of messaging, right? So one of the things I see often is people who are like, oh, we'll have junior person XX run our social media. And it's someone who is, they don't really understand, right, what the overall core messaging of the company is. And so you end up with this like really strange um, messaging uh, 
sort of error of messaging, right? Where social is kind of hip and cool over here and then we're saying an entirely different thing over here. So at the end of the day, that's my point of view is just that it's like, we have to make sure that there is strong alignment of messaging across channels, but I think they're all tactical, right? Like I think PR should also sit under marketing. Um, I don't actually think it should exist as its own channel. I mean, at the end of the day, we're only doing PR to market the company anyway. Yeah, right. Whose side did I follow? uh, (laughs) I don't know if there's a good answer to it. It's a curiosity, right? Because these things always sit in different places. And is social media its own function because it has customer care and marketing and PR aspects to it? Or Mm -hmm. are these, you know, different parts of these silos, that's it? Or does PR sit in a marketing, like you said? So I think it is dependent on each business. Um, I think you brought out a really good point, though. And this is something we've hit on is that as long as the narrative of the organization is very clear um, and the purpose of what these things are doing as a tactic, as a delivery channel, um, sometimes syndication channel is aligned, then I think you have uh, the right perspective for sure. So yeah, I teach this book called Traction. I don't know if you've all ever read it, but I think it's probably like the best marketing startup book um, out there. And it's essentially this book that talks about your traction channels, right? Because in the fact that there are these 23 traction channels, social media is one of them. PR actually gets put in there twice, once for traditional PR and then once for um, non-traditional PR. Um, But ultimately, right, what it's all in service of is traction for your business. And and that's actually this way that I kind of like to think about it, right? It's like, yeah. the only reason we're marketing things is because we want to grow our company. So does it even matter where it sits? Does it even matter how we talk about them? Probably not, as long as we're just figuring out which channels are actually moving the business forward, right? Like, like I often sure. still think there's a lot of people who do social media who like, sh- shouldn't be on there. Like the amount of time it costs them to grow and think about those channels could be so much better spent on a different channel that would help evolve the company faster that, but I also think that way about PR, right? Like if you're an e-com startup, PR is a nice to have. It is not a need to have after a certain threshold point because it doesn't actually drive direct sales, right? So I think it's, I like that idea of thinking about them in the perspective of what's driving traction more than anything. Yeah. Well, so many things that you brought up there that I, um, first of all, I want to give you um, huge kudos because um, I totally remember when you launched the kind of mommy blogger and uh, was it blog her, the conference, I believe that you um, would attend, right? All the, all the I went to every mom conference yeah. there for a couple of years. I totally remember that. And that, that was like the first time I'd ever even heard of the idea of a mommy blogger. You kind of introduced me to that idea, which obviously blew up and is, you know, a huge, huge audience in terms of um, consumption and buying power. Um, so kudos to you for that. But later on, you and I reconnected and again, want to give a shout out to you because you really became kind of a mentor to me when I was building the social influencer program at Qualcomm. So thank you. Pleasure. Always, always happy to help. Yeah. It was so great to have someone else who is sort of in the same circles and doing some of the same things, but maybe for different kinds of companies and, you know, on a different coast just to bounce ideas off of and um, and I feel like to the conversation that you and Tuck were having around where should social media sit, you know, is it a PR function? Is it a marketing function? I feel like influencer marketing is kind of having that same um, 
uh, sort of sense of self-discovery and trying to figure out where does this go and is it a brand awareness play, um, again, top of the funnel kind of thing in a brand love, or is it more transactional? Are they, you know, is there, is there a commerce link they're driving to kind of all the different things that we used to talk about regarding social years back, I feel like now is hitting influencer marketing. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think that question kind of goes back to the traction response as well, right? So it's like, what kind of traction are you hoping to get with influencer marketing? Right? Is it just a brand play? In which case, great, like pay them what they want to be paid and, and believe that a rising tide lifts all boats and that there will be a, a benefit for it down the road. Um, I have become disillusioned might not be entirely the right word, but a little bit about the space where you were building this influencer marketing software and you look at actual conversion rates, like e-commerce conversion rates against cost to hire an influencer and start to raise a lot of questions about like, is this viable for a business that is careful about and considering their marketing dollars, right? And, and does this play out? And then, you know, we see these industry trends towards the micro-influencer and it's like, okay, sometimes that works. Sometimes a giant influencer works and sometimes none of it works at all, period, right? And so the thing about social to me is that social works. Like it's a, it actually does work, right? Like it works as a way to gain exposure. It works as a way to create a community. Like it does a bunch of things that you can sort of track and measure. And influencer marketing, I think really is at this place where it's so expensive for so many people to do it in a paid capacity that it's like, I have these questions, is it even worth it? And then from an unpaid capacity, I also have a bunch of questions of like, is it worth it for them? Um, you, like it's their business. Should it be a business? Like when you think about it from this sort of sociological perspective of like, we have now changed ourselves into billboards and we're using social media as a way to sort of sell our lives. And like, what does that mean for humanity? And like, do we all want to be part of that? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or like, were we always walking billboards and now we're just being really clear and explicit about it? And like, it kind of comes to a point of if you kind of have the question of like, is this good for us? That was actually one of the reasons there was a few different reasons that we didn't continue to make the software. But as we looked about at things like how you apply AI to influencer marketing, how you look at these sort of big data sets, and then you want to start to make predictive recommendations about what kind of influencer works for which company. And you start to realize you are doing this thing of like trafficking in humans and selling them. And I don't know, I think I just got to a point where I was just like, is this, is this right? And, and from that perspective, I, that's sort of where I, I feel yeah. like I've fallen down on the entire space now. Yeah, I, I obviously you're opening up a huge topic that we've touched on a little bit here and there on the podcast. And um, I, I know Tuck and I both have some similar feelings when you've been in the digital and then the social media and then the influencer spaces for, you know, quite a while and you've seen it evolve. And then I want to get into the topic really um, that you're focused on with, with, with your new podcast. Um, we're seeing some of the dark sides and I think those of us that um, spend so much time in the spaces and have, you know, thought about it, we all kind of are questioning um, what is going on what, what, and, and how much of this do I want to be a part of? 
Yeah, this whole concept of commercializing attention, right? And, uh, and you know, always there will always be influence and there will always be word of mouth, to your point. Um, but this, the fact that we're actually monetizing it is a completely different story, especially on the personalized view. And, and what does that do for people, you know, in terms of who they are, who they are and what their self-worth is? And, you know, the, the trendy thing is, is wellness now, right? Digital wellness and how you're actually taking care of yourself uh, in these spaces, setting time limits and all the rest of that because we just can't control it. Um, so it's a big topic for sure. There's something really interesting on that point that um, I don't know how old the two of you are, but there is a bit of a generational conversation happening about um, Gen X versus millennials, right? And um, you I'm 21, like 21, by the way. That was my guess. I thought maybe yeah. you were part of Gen Z, so I, uh, yeah. I, I didn't have a role. To <laughs> Sorry, I, should, I shouldn't have laughed so loud at that. Um, but, uh, and sort of the wellness industry, right? And I think there's this interesting thing happening where people are like trying to find themselves in wellness. There's this whole talk of digital wellness. And part of that arose, right, because we do have this really distorted sort of, um, you know, uh, we have this really distorted sort of like, a, what's the, uh, like acetocin, but no, that's what it's called. With the dopamine hits that you're getting from social media, right? So, like, we created this culture yeah. where social media became this thing that was so addictive for us to do, right? Then now we have to, we're so you're seeing this swing back to like the digital detox where we're focusing like health and wellness as a way of finding meaning in our lives, right? Um, and there was this interesting series of articles in the New York Times recently talking about how like Gen X is, is not interested in finding meaning in their lives. Like that, like that wasn't a Gen X thing, right? Like because of where they fell in the curve of generations, meaning is like not that important. But for millennials, this quest to find meaning I don't know if you remember all of the, there was this Washington Post survey that came out in like 2012 and it like 70% of people said they wanted to grow up to be an, an influencer. Like it wasn't like they went to be an actor or they just wanted, oh, they went to grow up to be famous, right? Famous, which has sort of become to mean for most millennials being Instagram famous. And so as we look to this idea of digital, sort of digital wellness or digital detox, we're seeing a bunch of these influencers shift into the space of like wellness influencers and, and that's this burgeoning space, but ultimately it's just the same thing, right? Like how, how do you actually detox from something that has just become like a core part of cultural um, cultural consumption and how does that change? And I honestly think that the only solution is actually sort of whatever comes next in technology. So as we change what, you know, as the internet shifts and no longer becomes the internet and isn't this thing that we consume sort of passively on our screens is a moment where Instagram and Facebook will no longer become relevant in the way that they are right now. So as we look to sort of that fundamental, the fundamental like consumption shift, that's actually where we'll enter this moment of sort of digital wellness or digital well-being. But I think it's actually going to be driven by Gen Z, right? Who sees the way that millennials have sort of gotten this real distorted self-image and this understanding of what it means to sort of be an authentic, well human being, but that we're still probably like a decade from that. Yeah. Next up. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, very, that's very heavy. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> That's yeah. I like. We're, we're going to wrap with predictions, so we're going to come back to that. I love that line of thinking. Um, so this is actually a good segue because we've gone from you know kind of your background and again a bit more of the like table stakes with digital and social influencer to these sort of more socio political larger topics, the ramifications, if you will, of digital media, digital marketing. So. I want to bring in um, the fact that you've got a new podcast launching this summer about cyber warfare. And I want to just to start with a quick definition of cyber warfare, just in case some folks listening aren't as familiar. So cyber warfare, according to dictionary.com, is the use of computer technology to disrupt the activities of a state or organization, especially the deliberate attacking of information systems for strategic or military purposes. So I'm curious, with the background that you have, both Fortune 500, entrepreneurial, lots of different areas of digital, PR, what led you to focus on this particular topic of cyber warfare? I like to talk about the things that other people are afraid to talk about. Um, I My master's degree is in genocide, right? I'm not scared of the dark things like that. Um, I'm not afraid of them, right? I'm not afraid to talk about them. And I have this real belief that um, it's the things we keep in the dark that are the most dangerous to us. And so um, I think when I sort of look back at the things I've done, I could have never gotten to this place, this topic without the time I spent in Microsoft, without learning sort of what it means to talk about cutting edge technology, to, to live on the cutting edge of it, right? When we were, I mean, the things that Microsoft Research was talking about five years ago are things that we're starting to see at play now. I mean, you know, this at Qualcomm, y'all are always like seven or 10 years ahead of whatever's in the market. Um, and so it was sort of this transit, this weird path from um, being someone who academically focused on trauma and mass casualty incidents into someone who became a technologist into the space in the last couple of years where I've worked. Um, I worked for a cybersecurity company that was really very, 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 very deep in, in this space um, on the marketing front and, and was kind of like, wait, what are we marketing? What are we talking about? And I realized I didn't, as someone who was relatively highly educated, relatively, um, you know, uh, paying attention to what's happening on the news, uh, I didn't know that we are actively engaged in multiple cyber wars with multiple nations um, happening right now. So there are at least 30 nations who are engaged in cyber war every single day. And the more I dug into that topic, the, the more confused I became of just like, why aren't people talking about this? Why isn't this something that's in the public discourse? And, um, and then, uh, a friend at, um, popular mechanics from my PR days was like, Hey, maybe this is a podcast. And so, now I've been able to sort of use all that academic and then that workplace knowledge overlaid with my marketing knowledge to try and create something that um, makes a really difficult topic uh, consumable so that my mom is just as likely to listen as someone who's a cybersecurity expert. Did that answer your question? I feel like I'm a little bit off the rails. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, that was great. I, I think this obviously is a huge topic and I'm curious why, why now sort of what in 2019 makes this topic feel 
extra relevant, um, where there would be an audience, um, which I'm sure there will be, um, around cyber warfare and, um, you know, some of the insidious side of digital? Why now? Well, as we all know, um, Russia hacked America's elections. That's sort of unquestioned. Um, North Korea has hacked a number of different American companies, as well as is actively engaged in cyber criminal activities. And China um, is basically stealing everyone's IP. Um, so that that's been going on for the past, you know, few years. And cyber criminals are now on the rise. It's actually a $6 billion industry, the dark part of cyber war. So like the criminal dark market is $6 billion and growing. Um, Last year, 24 states had their electrical grids attacked. Not everyone's electrical grid went down, but that's alarming. Um, In over 19 states, um, the 311911 systems have been taken out. Um, and and this is just growing, right? I was a, um, recently part of a NATO working group on the topic of critical infrastructure. And if we think about someone attacking our critical infrastructure, which means like our electrical grid, our water systems, the internet, um, you start to realize it's not that hard. And what we're doing is playing a game of saying, well, they probably wouldn't take down our electricity. That seems crazy, right? And so we're living in this world right now where we're just assuming that violence isn't going to happen because we don't think the other person is going to do it. Um, And that always makes me really concerned, right? Like that's actually not how the world functions. And so because so many of those things are happening right now, it just felt like we we have to talk about this. We have another election that's coming up that we um, need to be prepared for. But election security to me is is tantamount is actually incredibly important. Um, but it's equally important that we think about our electricity or our cashless payment systems or just the safety of our data in general before it's too late. Yeah, I think it's super interesting that you say that, right? Because everything is becoming ones and zeros and as connected devices and, you know, everything is is moving into that state where you have to be connected and we're increasingly reliant on things that are connected, right? Like if everybody goes to electric cars, what happens with that, right? And, um, and all these, to your point, the systems that are put together, um, if they're disrupted, uh, in a lot of cases, people wouldn't know what to do because almost a lot of the old systems are going away in favor of the connected systems because of efficiency and cost and yet exposing us to potentially new threats that we're not fully capable of. Right. And, and like, I feel like I've seen this movie, right? Like China has a program literally called Skynet where they're actually putting this together uh, so that they can monitor everything. And, and then how, you know, that works in terms of privacy um, and security as well. Um, you know, just to get a little more specific, we, we saw this video of Nancy Pelosi, uh, learner speech, you know, fake news uh, coming out. And uh, just to bring it back to social media, YouTube removed it right away. Facebook says it doesn't violate their policy. Twitter had no comment. Um, it's actually still out there. It's up. It's still relevant. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really interesting to kind of see how each of these different spheres are reacting in terms of this, um, depending on how they're positioning their platform, uh, you know, whether it's free speech or enablement um, uh, or that it is actually violating policy. So what is your perspective on 
the social media space, I, I guess I could say digital media marketing in general of these platforms and the content that they either leave up or take down um, as part of these efforts. You said so many things, but okay, let's... <laughs> yeah, can you put that <laughs> in the box? Let's, uh, come on. Okay, so um, first of all, I just want to say you mentioned the thing about electric cars, right? So more and more people getting electric cars. What that means is each one of those ports where you plug in that car into the electrical grid opens up a new vulnerability to the electrical grid. And yet our electrical grid was built over 100 years ago and it's not made to sustain that sort of level of growth, right? So it is built, and I'm taking this back to social media. So our electrical grid was built not for these kinds of challenges, right? Our internet was built as this means of sharing information, right? It was actually not built with no one when we built the internet assumed people would attack the internet, right? Like it wasn't built like that. We didn't think that was a thing. And yet here we are now, well, it's almost 40 years later. It's something that's constantly under attack. And if you're someone who's smart enough to know how to do it, it would actually be very easy to take down the internet in small parts and targeted areas or across the board if you want to. I go back to our social media platforms and it is basically the same example, right? they weren't built with malintent. Like Mark Zuckerberg didn't build Facebook with the idea that people would use it as an insidious place to spread disinformation. Um, Instagram. I think he just wanted to find hot girls. (laughs) (laughs) Which maybe is its own sort of insidious center of disinformation. But, um, you know, it is what it is. And so we have these three platforms and more. We'll talk about the Chinese social scoring system in a second. But we have these three platforms that were built with the intention that they would be used for goodness, right? And part of what happens in that model is that we're not thinking about building for security. And so there is um, sort of this ongoing belief at the moment around this idea of secure by design, right? And, And we didn't do that from the beginning because I think we were just innocent in our approach to what these platforms are. It's the big concern happening with AI. It's the big concern with 5G right now, right? Is we're not building things that are secure by design. Um, And so I look at the problem of the Nancy Pelosi video or um, any kind of propaganda in general, and you just start to realize like, they're not made to combat those issues, but there's sort of a few bigger points than one of these one-off videos, which is also the fact of, should these companies be able to monitor and decide what it is that should be out there, right? Like, do, do I trust Mark Zuckerberg to be safeguarding our nation? I don't know Mark Zuckerberg personally. I have probably a lot of private thoughts about it, but like, but it is that idea of like, should a company do it, right? And there was the New York Times article by his co-founder recently saying it's a monopoly, that we should disband it, that we shouldn't let any of these systems have such control over um, how it is that we're sharing and spreading our news. Um, and the best book on this topic is this book called Like War by Peter Singer, who's a strategist out of New America. And Like War is a book about the information war that's currently happening globally. Um, when you talk about information war and cybersecurity at the same time, we often talk about them called as a, a phenomenon called hybrid war. Um, and that's because propaganda warfare is a 
common military tactic used to soften the ecosystem before you go in with a broader response. And the idea of doing that, right, is that you want to make it so no one thinks that they can trust anything. And the moment we take away trust in the system, well, okay, all of a sudden, who do you trust? Why do you trust? Where do you trust? I would argue that there are definitely large pockets pockets of America where trust is already eroded across these systems. And, and I don't think we can get it back, right? Um, there are people who believe that everything Fox News says is right without... Um, without looking at it in any other context. And the same of the New York Times or CNN or, or it was sort of wherever your political biases are. So when you think about it that way, is trust already eroded? Um, has it already eroded on these platforms? And then the question comes, so what can the platforms do at this point? And I think they have, I think we're too far gone. Like, yes, probably we should take down a fake video. Yes, but we've already missed it, right? Like there are maybe too many fake videos. Is, is that the right thing to do? Do we blame the platforms or do we actually look at something like the government and say, it's a social health issue to, um, to educate our population about what a fake video is or how to look for it or, or how to check information. I don't know, like I'm not sure that's the right response either, but I think we're sort of in this really fraught time where like, maybe we've already missed this and we are already engaged in these propaganda wars. And, and the question is sort of like, well, what do we do now? Like, mm-hmm. like how do we, do we make there be some sort of like technology that has to be put on video? Like I, I have no idea what the answer is, but that's, that's my yeah. thinking. Very yeah. randomly thinking. No, no, it, it's, that's, I mean, like, it, it's almost like this point of like, where's the line, right? Like, where's yeah. the line between PR to propaganda? Where's the line of someone who's generally themselves versus an influencer um, and what they're delivering in terms of a message? And when does it become fake news versus what is an advertising message or someone's personal agenda um, or a biased yeah. you know, news perspective, like, right? So, and who's making that an decision influencer. to your point? Yeah. Is an influencer fake news, right? Did we already lose the, did we already lose it then where we're like, yes, I'm going to trust that like Kim Kardashian really does like detox tea, right? Like, like, did we, did we already let it go? And now we're just seeing the fruits of the labor now. I mean, the same is true about AI. So the big argument in AI right now is that we're not building secure by design AI. We're sort of falling into this Silicon Valley model of, um, build fast and break things instead of thinking about like, okay, the algorithms that we base AI on now, whichever, whoever wins this AI game is going to have a massive impact on our entire society, both from a cybersecurity perspective, from an anything perspective. And yet we're not challenging those people at a really fundamental level to make sure that they're building fair and honest algorithms to make these machine learning models that will lead to AI, right? There's a great book called, um, Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And it, t- it talks about this, right? Of almost like the health of our AI systems now, which is something that we forgot about with social media. There's an even more, not more interesting, there's a, a continued version of this topic in this book called The Big Nine. And The Big Nine looks at American and Chinese models of AI development. It looks at the Chinese model against this sort of social scoring system. And um, and ask the question of who do we want to win the AI war, right? So there is China building this AI model. And then in North America, we're building an AI model. 
the Chinese model with sort of the big three tech giants in China is being government driven and government directed. So it's building in a really clear agenda. Whereas the North American model is being given over to these tech companies in the same way that we do with these social media platforms with the belief that technologists have a better agenda setting, sort of better vision, better direction for building an AI for our future than, than a connected government initiative would. Um, and I don't know that we have seen that play out in social media enough that I trust that the future of Facebook versus Google AI is going to be better than, um, than what China would want. Yeah, both sound really scary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you, the book at the Big Nine is actually fascinating because it really paints a picture of what both of these kinds of AI will develop into in the next 50 years. Interesting. And it yeah. is really scary. And it's really scary if you think China, if you think um, sort of as we look at the next tech revolution and AI, China wins it with AI, um, what kind of society that looks like um, in the world as China then emerges as the dominant power. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Heavy stuff. I know. I I just wanted to actually. I want to get like an ice cream cone and go sit in like a park somewhere. And <laughs> yeah. Right. I know. I just want to <laughs> jump into that big uh, the the what's the museum of ice cream with the the entire rooms full of sprinkles. I need to like shake it off, shake it off. Um, just don't take a picture. Just don't take a picture because I'm officially an Instagram influencer. Yes. Um, but bringing it back to threat matrix because I don't feel like we I feel like we talked about really broad topics and I'm sure all of that feeds into your editorial approach and so forth. Um, but I wanted just to give the audience a, a quick glimpse. So what are maybe two or three of the key topics or themes that you're going to cover on Threat Matrix as you guys launch this summer? Yeah, so Threat Matrix is a hypothetical fiction podcast. So essentially what we've done is try and take the topic of cyber warfare and make it something that almost feels like a true crime narrative. So we've interviewed... 30 or 40 experts across the field of cybersecurity, cyber war, whatever, and woven their stories into a fictionalized narrative. So what you actually see as you, or what you listen to as you listen to the podcast is um, the months leading up to a massive cyber attack against Manhattan. What that cyber attack looks like, we take you through the experience and then what it looks like as we continue um, for a few months after. Of course, it's a big attack and it's sort of, you know, it has to be a little bit kind of Hollywood for, um, for it to be worth listening to. But what's interesting is that everything we've built the attack off of has either, has already happened somewhere in the world. And so the question we're asking fundamentally is what would transition a cyber war into a kinetic war? So a war where there's actually bombs and bullets. And what does that escalation point look like? How far do we go until um, until it breaks, until the government decides that what we have to do is, is bomb or attack or kill someone based on what they've done in the digital domain? Wow. Wow. More music than ice cream. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. No, I mean, I'll listen to that. I mean, that's, it's, it's a little bit out of my normal realm of podcast topics, but I feel like I would learn a ton. Um, and, uh, and it would also open my mind to things that I probably don't spend enough time thinking slash well, worrying the, about. I mean, the thing is there are lots of other people worrying about it. Uh, I think the thing is, the thing maybe we forget is that, um, 
in a cyber attack is based on there being a number of weak points, right? Um, and an actor, a bad actor, exploits that number of weak points. So actually, the way to stop a cyber war in America is to have better personal protection of your own security, which is relatively easy, right? If you think about it, it's it's exactly the same metaphor as why we get vaccines, right? So the more people who are vaccinated against something, smallpox, say, the less likely there is a smallpox outbreak. In in this case, the more we take our personal um, digital security seriously, the less opportunities there are for people to take advantage of it and, and actually commit massive attacks. And that's both true of like our home security system, like making sure the password on your router is hard and maybe changing it occasionally, um, or in a corporate environment, right? Which is just like, understanding not to click the link of the thing you don't know what it is from someone you don't know who sent it to you even if it's a really cute like cats at the museum of ice cream right like and then it's sort of on you just that base level like um the, the thing i often talk about to people is um so i was attacked when i was 25 by a homeless person on the street that um, was really scary and i was able to fight my way out of the attack but it was like a long fight and they had a knife and i was on the ground and it was scary right and so i spent wow. almost a decade being afraid on some level even though i got further and further away from the incident um at night in different strange cities or around homeless people um and then in the past year i learned krav maga and i to kickboxing and I I now know how to fight right so like in the instance that that situation happens again I will be a lot more prepared and that's all I need to feel comfortable right it's it's sort of the same thing with this of like if you know that that attack is going to happen and you learn the thing you need to learn in order to protect yourself then even if it does happen you're prepared and so that's the whole point of the podcast is like if I can make you understand what a potentially horrible cyber incident could look like, you can protect yourself just enough that either you stop it from happening or that if it does happen, you're at least prepared to deal with the situation. Yeah, it's almost like there's two steps, right? First is just awareness and some of the things that people just don't even know. Right? Like I save all my browser passwords inside Chrome and you realize that that is an unprotected browser and someone's just going <laughs> to break that and go after it. So, um, but, but I think it's awareness and then to your point, being and able to have... have told everyone on this podcast... <laughs> No, I, I said uh, that was a fictionalized case, right? That was that was my threat matrix podcast. Lead. I actually use nothing like that. Um, but yeah, but I think it's awareness for one, and for two, it's the giving them the tool set, right? Like your Krav Maga, like give them the tool set to be able to react and defend themselves uh, against yeah. these. Because the thing out. is, it's like if we don't know about it, if we don't think of it as possible, then when it does happen, like how much scarier is that? Like if you don't know cyber war is a thing. And then you wake up one day and the power is out in LA or San Francisco or Manhattan, wherever you live. And the government's like, yeah, it's a computer guest. We'll get it back on. We'll get it back on. And then five days later, it's still out because a foreign actor is playing with that system and playing with the government. And then all of a sudden the government's like, hey guys, we're going to bomb Russia because it turns out they're the reason the power is out. Right. And then everyone's just going to be like, what Russia? Like, like it's just gonna be so crazy that you yeah. can't respond to it because it just seems outlandish to the point you almost can't even believe it. Um, so if we talk about it at least, then if it happens, then we'll be like, oh yeah, we knew that was a possibility. 
now, now we at least are less scared. So you're listening to Social Currency. We are talking with Christina Libby, host and producer of the new podcast called Threat Matrix about cyber warfare, which we just talked about. Um, Christina, you've shared that search, social, and um, and now probably podcasting, since that's what's up next, uh, you think are digital and, and uh, digital channels that are really important to, uh, especially you know, communicating and making awareness available for anyone. Um, wh- why do you think these are the most critical channels right now? Yeah, so I work with a lot of e-com companies. Um, I feel like search is the thing that everyone does wrong. I feel like people forget the power of SEO in um in driving people to their website, which is literally just like the difference between having a store on like all the way over on the West Side Highway in New York or like having a store in Soho, right? I I think that's, um, I think search is incredibly important because particularly because the cost of social media ads has become so expensive that it feels like you just have to be thinking about it as a channel and you have to be creating content um, that's optimized. And I, I do think that maybe we're reaching this kind of weird saturation point um, where the most effective way of marketing your business will not be online for a little while, right? Just because everything online is so expensive, I think we'll see like a flip point. I just talked about that with my students yesterday. Um, but right now I think search is important. I still think not enough people are thinking about their SEO strategy. Um, I think social is important because I think um, community is really important for brand growth and success. And I think, especially in this era where we still feel so disconnected, where everything we do is through a phone, where, um, like I was just reading, I don't know if I can talk about this on your podcast, but I was just reading this New York Times article and they were talking about, um, Sletbot. So Sletbot is like a chatbot to teach you how to have like slutty, sexy text conversations, but you have them with your bot instead of a person. And I think it's the same company or this other company created this ghosting app. So like, rather than just ghost someone, the app will ghost them on your behalf. Like, like that's where we are right now, culturally, right? Like we're seeing a rise in like, like sex bots. Like, we, like we're so like we are choosing to have sex with a robot because like having sex, I, I actually went to this lecture on robots and as I got into this, an AI and robots, I got into this elevator with this man. He was like, yeah, you know, sex bots seem weird, but like women are so much drama. And I was just like, okay, so socially what we're deciding to do is like, we would rather have sex with a robot than like interact with someone who has human emotions both like that's weird right and it's and we're like so sorry no um, it's, it's i mean it's like looking for the easy path right and that's, that's right. the premise is that everything is all about ease and convenience and what is the easy consumer experience i mean literally that is that right right it's a sex robot and so like that's why social is important because it's giving us a space to be communal i think what's really interesting is like the rise of facebook groups um like Facebook groups, like sort of things that are off page happening in social, like the rise of messaging bots in Facebook Messenger, both on behalf of brands or on behalf of other organizations. And I think it's a direct response to this fact of just being like, but I have no one to touch and talk to. Um, I still think it's kind of a false proxy, but I think it's like the best we can do. And that podcasts, I think, are interesting um, because it's super intimate right? Like a podcast is my voice in your ears. And that's a thing that feels really deeply human. Um, 
I think there is still kind of an elite podcast audience, right? Like consumption of podcasts is on the rise, but it's still a relatively small percentage of podcasts um, of people who are consuming podcasts. Um, but I, I think it works because I think like it's not a group activity, right? And it feels like you're doing it for me. And there's something, it's like being on the phone with you. Um, but I think because it just feels more human, I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of how I- Yeah, I think we've used the word intimate about podcasts because it's in your ear and it feels mm-hmm. very personal. Um, yeah, I, th- I do think, um, I think intimate is the right word, right? And I, and I think it's, I also think mm, as we look at geographically no. what people are doing, like people are having to drive further and further into work or, or commute further because the cost of living is so expensive that a podcast is sort of the perfect accompaniment when like pop radio feels like candy, at least a podcast feels like, even if it's a true crime podcast, it still sort of feels like a salad, right? And so I think we're like, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe yeah, there's detox, a moment for my- Detoxing with some podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be your quote. <laughs> right, where radio is candy to podcasting is a green salad. I love it. So I I know this is such a great conversation and I know we've covered so many topics. Um, I want to wrap us with a few kind of quick fire questions. I'm going to do one and then I'll hand it to Tuck to to ask you the things that we always like to ask our guests at the end. Um, So my question for you is just quickly, if you had um, two or three predictions 10 years from now, when you think about these discussions around social media, fake news, cyber attacks, 10 years from now, what do you predict? The way we consume everything is going to change. I don't know what that means, right? But I do believe that we'll be in a more like VR, AR forward world, which I think means the way that we actually consume everything on the internet will be different. I don't think we have the ability to understand yet where we're going unless maybe just you do like maybe the Qualcomm people are already are already there but um but I don't know yet but I do think that our entire consumption pattern will change that being said I think our time online and our consumption online um for most groups of people will increase I think people will be spending 10 plus hours a day doing whatever it is they're doing against a digital. So more, more consumption, but perhaps in a different way, consuming in a different way. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. And I, and I think, um, I think AI is the future, right? Like we have to understand the role that AI is going to play and it's going to make us a lot more vulnerable and increase um, the number of security challenges that we have across like a whole bunch of worlds 10 years from now we won't have artificial like super intelligence it will still be something that is an interaction between humans and the algorithms we create but i think we need to start to really be thinking about the ethical lines that we want to let ai play in yeah for sure so um Christina, one of the things we like to chat about is kind of like how do you like to stay up to date on digital trends? But I think more specifically for you, I'm super interested in, um, you know, we talked about being aware and being able to defend yourself. Uh, what are your sources for people if they just, you know, want to take 10 minutes out and get more educated, um, help understand what's going on in the space um, so that they can understand, react, maybe protect themselves a little bit more so now um, with things they can do? What are your good sources for that? 
There's this website called don'tclickonthat.com, which is a good primer if you just like, how should I protect myself um, personally? So that's good. Um, the problem with this space is that there aren't that many places that a more general consumer can learn about uh, sort of cyber warfare or cybersecurity. It's mostly um, focused on the industry itself. Um, but there are some good books. So I would say if you want to understand um, the space, there is this book called uh, Zero Day. And Zero Day, I think that's what this one's called. I'm pretty sure it's called Zero Day. Um, we'll, we'll get it from you about, in, the, in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's called Zero Day. And it's the book that talks about the first um, U.S. Uh, there was a U.S. Coordinate, US Israeli coordinated attack. Um, and that's kind of where this whole cyber work conversation came from. So that's a good place to it's just say read that book. And it helps you understand the geopolitical landscape of what we're talking about and why it matters. All right, Christina, um, one piece of advice you'd give to leaders trying to figure out digital and social marketing. Listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even ask her to say that. Oh, what a good friend. I mean, I believe it. Oh, thank you for that. Awesome. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, that's always been our goal, right? Is to try to kind of deconstruct digital media and social marketing to make it a little more approachable for folks that didn't grow up um, with it, which, you know, many of us um, came into it and somewhere in our early careers. But it's a different world, I think, if, you know, if you're being expected to speak about these things and understand and make decisions and allocate budget, but you haven't actually spent a lot of time. So um, that's always our goal. It's complicated and it changes every day. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Staying on top of it is almost impossible. Um, so um, uh, I guess that that's also the other, the other um, edge of that sword is that's also what makes it really interesting, the, the dynamic nature of it. Um, well, hey, Christina, thank you so much. This was so informative and interesting and again, kind of like blew my mind. No, I mean, you're, you're totally right. I, I, my biggest takeaway from this was um, that if you don't understand or you aren't interested or curious about the possibilities, you're never going to prepare yourself. You're never going to have that backup plan um, or change those passwords on a regular cadence, you know? And so if nothing else, it makes me just pause and go, okay, where, where potentially are the vulnerabilities? You know, where are the gaps that, you know, that myself at work or myself and my family and anyone listening, you know, just try to button it up and, and protect yourself in advance until, like you said, um, some of these technologies really are built with security baked in from the beginning, which is, I think, where we all want it to eventually evolve to. Just my last point on that, this idea of, like, this is true of every field, right? Like, we're talking about cybersecurity right now, but the same thing is it's true of digital marketing. It's just like be curious, like look at what's happening in the future and like find the vulnerabilities in whatever you're doing. Right. So like, you know, wh where is the weakness in your digital marketing plan? Like it's, it's kind of all of this is the exact same thing. And the fact that it's like, uh, I studied the war novel as an undergrad major, but it's like, everything is a war novel, right? Like there is a bunch of different options on the table we are figuring out what those options are. And we have to always be really curious about like, what's the black swan incident? What's the thing that's going to come out of left field? Is it, 
you know, the rise of WeChat? Is it, you know, the next Snapchat? Mm-hmm. Like, like, what are these things, right? And then, and where are the vulnerabilities in your plan? And how do you protect yourself against them? And ultimately, it's just a question of saying, I want to take care of me, whether me as my company or me as me individually. And the best way to do that is to just understand where you're weak and then get stronger there. Totally. All right. So Christina, where can people find you or learn more about Threat Matrix? Um, can I tell you in a couple of weeks? Where can they at least follow Instagram. you for now? Um, uh, um, look up Threat Matrix. We have an Instagram channel. That's actually probably the best destination for people. And we have a Twitter channel. Um, a t- Twitter channel is like not the way you say it. Are you new to this? <laughs> I, I, I followed your Twitter channel last night. <laughs> on the Twitter. Um, and they can oh, find you, I know, at Christina Libby on oh, Twitter. We should have, yes, yeah. let's let them know how to find you for all the goodness. Perfect. All right. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up. But um, Christina, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, all the pieces that you talked about we'll have in the show notes and really appreciate your time. Although we may not put Slutbot in um, that list, but uh, <laughs> everything else I think is cool to throw in there. Um, but again, thank you so much for your time. We're looking forward to Threat Matrix and really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you. I'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, Christina.